The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled How I Think, How I Treat, Assessing, Managing, and Engaging Patients with Uncontrolled, Moderate to Severe Asthma, Comparing Approaches with Experts Around the World, with Drs. Michael E. Wexler, Mona Al-Ahmad, and David Jackson. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash VMJ860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello and welcome to our program, How I Think, How I Treat, Assessing, Managing, and Engaging Patients with Uncontrolled Moderate Severe Asthma, Comparing Approaches with Experts Around the World. I'm Dr. Michael Wexler, Professor of Medicine and Director of the National Jewish Cohen Family Asthma Institute in Denver, Colorado, in the United States. Joining me today are Dr. Mona Al-Ahmad, who's from Kuwait University in Kuwait City, Kuwait, and Dr. David Jackson, who's from the Guy's Severe Asthma Center at Guy's Hospital, King's College, London, London, United Kingdom. Our goals today are to evaluate a case-based demonstration and instruction of global approaches to the management of uncontrolled moderate severe asthma. And we'll do this throughout the program using a theme and variation approach. We'll discuss assessing asthma disease severity, We'll review the use of targeted therapies to manage uncontrolled moderate severe asthma in adults and children. And we'll also evaluate strategies for engaging patients in their care and improving treatment adherence. So let's start off with Dr. David Jackson and how we are assessing severity of asthma around the world. Thanks, uh, Mike. Uh, Hi, everybody. Uh, It's a pleasure to speak to you today. So I wanted to start with discussing some of the terminology because it can often be a little bit confusing. There are these three terms, uncontrolled asthma, difficult to treat asthma, and severe asthma. And there are subtle but important differences between them. Uncontrolled asthma essentially means frequent symptoms or frequent exacerbations. Control really relates to the day-to-day symptom control and risk of exacerbations. But it's important to remember that many patients can be poorly controlled but not have severe asthma. So for an example, you could have a patient who is on a low-dose ICS who is fully controlled. If they stop taking that ICS, they start having day-to-day symptoms, they can exacerbate, but fundamentally this asthma can be controlled even at a low dose of ICS, suggesting they don't have severe asthma, perhaps not even particularly moderate asthma. This is difficult, this is different from difficult to treat asthma. This essentially is asthma, which is where patients are symptomatic despite being prescribed high-dose or medium-dose inhaled steroids, but for whom their symptoms may not be uh, related to either asthma necessarily, could be from a comorbidity, or if there's another factor that contributes to why their asthma is poorly controlled, such as poor adherence or poor inhaler technique. And then we come to severe asthma, which really means Asthma that is persistent, where the patients are symptomatic, they may be having frequent exacerbations, despite good adherence, good inhaler technique to high-dose inhaled therapy. This is really high-dose inhaled steroids and long-acting beta agonists as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a basic, and where the other factors have been uh, uh, addressed. And in this schematic, this is really uh, shown here. So we have patients that will come and visit in clinic who are symptomatic with the classic symptoms of asthma. They perhaps have already been prescribed a medium or high-dose ICS, and they really then fall into these three categories. The symptoms may be due to asthma, but actually, although they are asthmatics, their symptoms 
may be due to other causes. And in many patients who have a label of asthma and have been given an inhaler actually don't have asthma at all. And at some point in the past, a doctor has given them an inhaler inappropriately. And there are many comorbidities that could really underpin this, both in an asthmatic and in a non-asthmatic. So dysfunctional breathing patterns, laryngeal obstruction, severe gastroesophageal reflux, psychological problems, obesity, and so on. They can all give, create symptoms and mimic asthma, uh, both in patients with and without asthma. And here's a slide of just showing a few examples of large airway obstruction with tracheobronchomalacia. This is a patient of mine who's got relapsing polychondritis where the cartilage and the trachea is affected. And so there is airflow obstruction, but it is not in the small airways. Although this patient has asthma, the asthma is actually mild and the symptoms are really coming from the relapsing polychondritis. In patients then who do have symptoms due to asthma, the most common reason why they're still symptomatic and poorly controlled is actually they're not taking the treatment every day as prescribed, or although they're doing their best to take it, the inhaler technique is not uh, optimized. And this is incredibly common. So this is a, a paper, uh, a study from 15 years ago, a United States study. Bender was the first author. Almost uh, well, over 5,000 patients who were on an ics labor combination therapy. And you can see from the slide that across different age groups, across genders, overall adherence based on number of prescriptions in the previous year was really down at 20 to 25%. So it's incredibly common for patients not to be taking treatment on a daily basis. And this has consequences. And we know from this very important study from Sami Suiza, again published just over 20 years ago, that the likelihood of a fatal outcome from asthma actually relates to adherence to inhaled corticosteroids. You can see in most cases with patients who take their treatment every day, they usually go through a canister a month on average, approximately. And those with 12 in a year who are adherent clearly have a very low likelihood of a fatal outcome. But in contrast, those who are down at one, two, three canisters per year, really highlighting you know, adherence rates of 10, 20% have a much, much higher rate of uh, death from asthma. And there are different ways now to objectively assess adherence to therapy. Uh, in patients on maintenance prednisolone, you can do a blood prednisolone and cortisol level. Obviously, if they're taking the treatment every day, their cortisol should be suppressed. Prednisolone should be detectable. In patients on inhaled therapy, uh, previously we used uh, prescription records. Then the phenosuppression test got brought in, which is a very interesting test, but time-consuming. And now already this e-monitoring e of inhalers has been introduced. And I think increasingly over the next few years, it's, it's going to become more and more widespread, allowing us and allowing patients uh, to, ident to be reminded when they miss doses uh, and to really sort of help them in a, in a supportive way. So these two things, inhaler, inhaler technique and adherence, really are the two most common reasons why patients remain poorly controlled. Non-adherence is incredibly common, as I've mentioned, and it's important that we as clinicians try and understand why patients are non-adherent to therapy. Sometimes it is simply forgetfulness. Other times it's because they're worried they're going to become addicted to their inhaled steroid, or they're worried about side effects, or there's a financial issue. So it's very important if we're going to really try and get to the bottom of it, we understand the factors. And with inhaler technique, all too often as clinicians, we forget to check inhaler technique ourselves 
And unfortunately, many clinicians uh, in different other related specialties aren't particularly good at inhaler technique themselves. And so it's important that we as clinicians also remind ourselves of optimal technique uh, before teaching our patients. So coming back to this schematic, what we really have then is the difference between difficult and severe asthma. Difficult asthma is all the stuff we've discussed, the possibility of other factors contributing to the symptoms, or if there's adherence or inhaler technique issues. And once these have been excluded and optimized, what we're really then left with is patients with severe asthma who are poorly controlled despite good adherence and inhaler technique to inhaled therapy when their symptoms are due to asthma itself. And then we come to this divide because in patients with asthma, fundamentally, their symptoms can be driven by airways inflammation, classic T2 airways inflammation, which we're going to come on to later, or they can be due to airflow obstruction or both. And it's important then we try and understand what is the dominant driver if it is an inflammatory problem that needs an anti-inflammatory approach. Is it fundamentally more of airflow obstruction, where the inflammatory components have already been treated on the level of inhaled steroids the patient might be on, but there's still persistent uh, airflow obstruction that needs a, an addi additional bronchodilation. So this is uh, very, very important. An, an interesting study from the Netherlands, uh, as shown here, really highlighted the prevalence of difficult asthma versus severe asthma. In this study across the Netherlands, they showed that almost a quarter of patients were actually on medium to high dose inhaled steroids, genus step four or five treatment, of which 17% were poorly controlled. But once adherence and once inhaler technique was optimized, actually this number fell by about 80%, leaving just 3.7% of patients who on treatment with medium or high dose ICS remained poorly controlled once adherence an inhaler technique was optimized, highlighting really quite how common it is and how important it is. And with that, I'm going to move on to a case. This is a case of a 35-year-old lady who presents to clinic for an evaluation of her asthma, having been essentially poorly controlled. She's had asthma since childhood, and in the last 12 months, she's had two exacerbations requiring systemic steroids. She's already been prescribed inhaled steroids, long-acting beta agonist, and antimuscarinic as triple inhaled therapy, and uses a short-acting bronchodilator as well. She's of normal weight and complains about the need to use her rescue inhaler frequently, really highlighting regular symptoms. So with this, I think it's important to kind of discuss next steps. We don't at this point have other measures that are important. So I would want to know about uh, lung function. As I've mentioned, the spirometry is important to give a guide as to whether there is significant airflow obstruction. We'd want to know about levels of airways inflammation um, as well. And there are some questions that have been uh, posted uh, just to go through a, a few of them. The first clearly is uh, and a very important one, which you've already touched on, is what's the routine workup we would use for someone with uncontrolled asthma. And if I just start briefly with this, as, as explained, always start with the most common problems. Number one, confirm it's clearly asthma and the patient's symptomatic and those symptoms are consistent with asthma. The second thing is, are they actually taking their treatment regularly? Is the inhaler technique optimal? 
Then it's important from my point of view to really bring in the lung function and the biomarkers, which we're going to come on to. Understand are the symptoms, can they be explainable by either ongoing airways inflammation with high T2 biomarkers or significant airflow obstruction? Because often in my experience, when you see a patient who appears symptomatic in the absence of any airflow obstruction on spirometry, in the absence of airways inflammation, often there's something else driving the symptoms. And as I mentioned earlier, this can be a range of things from significant uncontrolled reflux to a patient being deconditioned in the context of obesity or especially in the context of the pandemic, many patients have become more deconditioned and so on. But I just want to hand over to my colleagues here and, and, and uh, for them to ask answer some of these other questions. And if I just uh, come to you first, um, uh, Dr. Al-Ahmed, and, uh, to think about allergy testing, because this is something we've always considered in the broader workup. How important do you feel it is? Is it something that we should do in all patients? Thank you, Jackson, uh, Dr. Jackson. Uh, this is a very important question. And I think a skin prick test is uh, one of the in vivo uh, tests to uh, diagnose a specific IgE to certain allergens. And in this case, going to be to uh, aeroallergens or inhalant allergens. Now, it is not a diagnostic per se for asthma, but it helps us to diagnose the allergic phenotype. Now, usually I like to say sensitization rather than, you know, allergy, because, you know, at the end of the day, we need always a correlation with the clinical symptoms. So a patient whose uh, asthma exacerbations or asthma attack are correlated with allergy or a specific allergy season, in, in the presence of uh, sensitization to certain aeroallergens, then that's, that's more of, of a supportive of uh, um, uh, allergic sensitization during the allergy season. So we can say that the driving factor for her exacerbations is probably a certain uh, allergy season to weather. Now, this could be like to certain pollens, uh, certain, you know, uh, pet tenders, or, uh, house dust mites or others. Uh, so there are panels that usually they are customized to certain regions and, and countries. So in this case, if we can apply this to this case, I want to know whether she's complaining of uh, any phenotype of allergic diseases, um, i.e. does she have any allergic rhinitis symptoms? Does her uh, asthma exacerbates usually along with the allergy season when the, you know, the pollen counts are at, at max uh, in the environment uh, recording? Uh, so that's always going to help us. Now, as I said, it's it's very sensitive. It's highly sensitive tool. Usually correlates also with a specific uh, IgE to certain allergens that can be tested in vitro. And uh, um, you know, if you have an access to skin prick tests, it's very good uh, um, uh, test to be added. I would uh, say supportive test to be added for uh, identifying uh, certain phenotypes, in particular the allergic phenotype. Thank you. And Dr. Wexler, we've had a number of questions that relate to T2 biomarkers. So where in your practice in this kind of scenario would you start thinking about doing measuring the blood sniffle count, measuring pheno, and, and what is the usefulness of these biomarkers? Yeah, so I think it's really critical to evaluate what type of asthma the patient has. So even before I determine whether or not they're severe or not, I want to characterize the asthma. And so I am... 
very um, aggressive in terms of utilizing biomarkers to help evaluate asthma. I check a blood eosinophil count on everyone. I check an excelled nitric oxide in everyone. I check an IgE level on everyone. And I think those are the three key biomarkers that we currently have uh, available to us. In some patients, I may also be checking a sputum um, eosinophil count. Uh, and in extreme cases, I might even do a bronchoscopy to evaluate what could be going on in the airways. And that's part of my workup for patients with truly severe asthma, because I want to see whether or not they've got other comorbidities, whether they've got vocal cord dysfunction, whether they have something else in the airways that could be obstructing them, whether they've got laryngopharyngeal reflux. So the key biomarkers, again, of eosinophils that, that really reflects IL-5-mediated inflammation, uh, excelled nitric oxide that reflects IL-13-mediated inflammation, and uh, IgE, which reflects to some extent IgE-mediated uh, IgE inflammation or allergic inflammation are the key biomarkers that I'll evaluate in pretty much all of my patients with severe asthma. And so Dr. Wex is now going to discuss the approach to managing uncontrolled moderate to severe asthma uh, in patients and identifying eligibility for uh, the new generation of targeted therapies. Thank you, David. And uh, it's really important to evaluate uh, your patients because severe asthma remains a big problem, as Dr. Jackson uh, mentioned. And I think the first thing we need to recognize is that asthma is a very heterogeneous disease. There are many different types of asthma. Patients will present with all sorts of different symptoms. Patients will present with uh, different uh, manifestations, and they may respond to different stimuli causing their asthma. In addition, patients may respond very differently to different treatments. So part of treating and managing severe asthma is understanding what type of asthma the patient has, and then evaluating whether or not they will respond to specific therapies. Part of that is evaluating the underlying pathophysiology and getting a sense of the underlying endotype or mechanism of disease. And sometimes it's helpful to evaluate the phenotype, the outward manifestation of disease, in order to best get a sense of what the underlying endotype is. So when we think about endotypes, we think about the mechanism of disease, and we want to know whether the patient has eosinophilic asthma, whether they've got IL-4, IL-13-mediated asthma, whether they've got IgE-mediated asthma, and all of these play important roles in many patients with severe asthma itself. One of the key components is identifying the inflammatory subtypes of asthma, and this can be done in many ways. Generally, we think about utilizing uh, blood biomarkers such as blood eosinophils, or you can evaluate serum IgE levels, but you can even get more granular and you can look at the airways themselves and evaluate sputum. You can do bronchoscopy and you can do bronchial biopsies, get bronchoalveolar lavage to evaluate for uh, BAL eosinophilia, and you can also evaluate allerg allergic sensitization as well, either through RAS testing and or through skin testing, as Dr. Ahmad uh, already mentioned. This gives a sense of the different phenotypes and endotypes that may be presenting in a patient with asthma. And the phenotypes that will present, whether it's someone who's got a propensity towards infections or whether it's someone who's got a propensity towards allergies, will give us a sense of all the different endotypes. And these endotypes are generally in divided into two broad categories. There's type 2 high and type 2 low. And within those categories, uh, there are specific subtypes, particularly in the type 2 high, 
We can see patients with allergic asthma, patients with eosinophilic asthma, and patients who have a mix of eosinophilic allergic asthma and who may present with high nitric oxide, high eosinophils, and higher Ig levels and or sensitization to different allergens. In terms of the non-type 2 asthma patients, oftentimes these patients are a bit more obese, they may have more infections and or maybe smokers, and often will present with a neutrophilic appearance. But sometimes there may be no increase in biomarkers and these patients may have a posse-granulocytic appearance. In some patients, you may even see a mixed type 2 and non-type 2 feature with patients who have both eosinophilia and neutrophilia. And these can be particularly challenging to manage. So let's review each of these different endotypes. We'll start off again by talking about type 2 high asthma. This is generally characterized by increased IgE levels, increased eosinophil levels and eosinophilic inflammation, increased IL-13-mediated nitric oxide production, and these patients do tend to be somewhat responsive to corticosteroids given the type 2 nature of their underlying disease. Now, many different patients fall under the type 2 asthma umbrella. Generally, we think of type 2 asthma as being defined by production of different inflammatory cytokines, including interleukin-4, interleukin-5, and interleukin-13. No single biomarker captures the full range of type 2 inflammation patients with type 2 high asthma, so you need to do a broad evaluation of all the biomarkers, including looking at IgE levels, uh, FENO levels, and eosinophil levels. Sometimes eosinophil levels can be indicative of late-onset eosinophilic asthma, but many patients with childhood-onset asthma may also present with high eosinophil levels. Patients with higher IgE levels generally reflect patients who've got allergic phenotype, and patients with nitric oxide level elevations generally reflect IL-13-mediated inflammation and are often characterized by increased mucus production as well. All three of these types of patients may, may have overlapping features, overlapping characterization biomarkers, and may all respond to inhaled corticosteroids, but many do not. So when we think about these patients with type 2 disease, what are some of the phenotypic characteristics that can help us identify these patients? Well, oftentimes these patients have a strong family history of atopic disease and or allergies. And many of these patients will have other atopic conditions, including allergic rhinitis, atopic dermatitis, and or chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps. Patients with type 2 disease may have milder presentation, or they may even have more severe presentation. And the course can be quite variable across all of these patients. Some patients will have frequent exacerbations, and patients who've got a mixed phenotype with both type 2 and non-type 2 disease can have frequent exacerbations, and this can be exacerbated to some extent by obesity. Other key features of type 2 high asthma is that there's a subset of patients who've got later onset disease, adult onset asthma. And this is asthma that presents after age 20 or so. There's no history of allergic phenomena in, in childhood, and these patients often have an eosinophilic phenotype. The way to identify these patients is by evaluating eosinophils in the blood and or in the sputum. And it's important to recognize that this eosinophilia can persist despite use of inhaled corticosteroid therapy. The allergic status can be quite variable. Some patients do have a history of allergies, and yet some patients don't have a history of allergies. And the other thing to recognize is to look for 
signs and symptoms of other comorbidities related to type 2 high disease, including chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps and or aspirin sensitivity. In terms of the non-type 2 patients, we generally think of patients with neutrophilic asthma and patients who have absence of the other type 2 biomarkers, absence of eosinophils, low levels of nitric oxide, lower Ig levels. In general, we think of neutrophilic asthma as a, as a disease in which the airway epithelial cells produce cytokines that stimulate Th1 and Th17 cells to attract and stimulate neutrophils. The Th1 cells are stimulated by innate stimuli that drive neutrophilic inflammation, and many patients will present with neutrophilic predominance in the sputum or bronchial lavage with over 40 to 60% uh, neutrophils present in those compartments. Some of the key phenotypic characteristics associated with type 2 low asthma is the presence of oxidative stress, chronic infection, elevations uh, in high-fat diet, and also a smoking history. Many of these patients will have asthma but won't have any of the type 2 biomarkers present. These patients, unfortunately, are very challenging to manage, and they generally don't respond to corticosteroids, either inhaled nor oral corticosteroids. And there's also a higher association with fixed airflow obstruction. In some of these patients, what I try to do is evaluate to see whether they have infections. And we'll take a, a serious look at their airway microbiology by looking at sputum or by doing bronchoalveolar lavage. The posse-granulocytic subgroup of type 2 low asthma can be very challenging because these patients don't have any eosinophils, they don't have higher nitric oxide, they don't have higher Ig, and they also don't have high neutrophil levels. They're considered to be non- or low-inflammatory asthma. They're very poorly understood and less well-characterized. And some people even say that these patients don't even truly have asthma because they don't have any of the key pathophysiological features associated with asthma. They do have, however, airflow limitation that can result from structural changes and possibly some risk of airway remodeling with uncoupling from the airway inflammation, with collagen deposition, smooth muscle proliferation, airway hyperresponsiveness or twitchiness of the airways, and they're generally thought to be pretty steroid insensitive. When we think about all these patients, I think it's important to recognize and step back and understand better how the immunology of asthma works. And so in that regard, we think of both type 2 inflammation on the left-hand side and non-type 2 inflammation. We need to think about the allergens that predispose to type 2 inflammation, but other factors present as well and can also stimulate type 2 inflammation. Infections can cause both type 2 and non-type 2 inflammation. We need to think broadly at the epithelial alarmants that can stimulate all these pathways, IL-25, IL-33, and TSLP, or thymic stromolympopoietin, all act upstream to activate downstream inflammatory cascade signals. TSLP in particular has been shown to activate Th2 cells and ILC2 cells to produce the different type 2 cytokines, interleukin-4, interleukin-5, and interleukin-13. Interleukin-4 is important in B-cell activation and production of IgE that acts on mast cells to cause mast cell degranulation and release of histamines and other mediators. IL-5 is the cytokine that's involved in eosinophil maturation, activation, and proliferation. And IL-13 is involved in airway hyperresponsiveness, as well as in nitric oxide production and mucus production. In terms of some of the non-type 2 
um, pathways that are involved in asthma. We know that IL-33, IL-6, IL-17, and IL-1 can play an important role and can stimulate Th17 cells and Th1 cells to activate neutrophils and cause recruitment of neutrophils to airway areas of airway inflammation. What's interesting and common across these different endotypes is that despite the fact that there's different mechanisms of disease, patients with asthma, whether they've got type 2 inflammation or non-type 2 inflammation, can all exhibit mucus production, airway hyperresponsiveness, airway remodeling, smooth muscle constriction, and smooth muscle hypertrophy. The reason why we need to understand and recognize these mechanisms is because now we have some targeted approaches for all these cytokines in patients who have severe asthma. We can target in some of the type 2 cytokines, including IL-4, IL-5, IL-13, and we can go upstream with TSLP. So here's a list of the targeted biologic approaches to treatment of severe asthma. We'll start off on the left-hand side with dupilumab, which blocks IL-4 and IL-13. It's approved about in children above age 6. It's administered subcutaneously every two weeks, and it's also been approved for atopic dermatitis and chronic rhinosinusitis nasal polyps. And there are emerging data that it may be effective as well in eosinophilic esophagitis, as well as in urticaria. It's currently been approved in the United States, in Europe, and in other countries. Omalizumab was the first biologic to be approved, and it's really indicated for patients with allergic asthma, severe allergic asthma. It targets IgE and prevents IgE from binding to mast cells and preventing mast cell degranulation release of its mediators. It too has been approved children above age six. It's administered subcutaneously every two to four weeks and has also been approved for chronic spontaneous urticaria as well as nasal polyps. Mepolizumab and reslizumab both target interleukin-5. Reslizumab is administered intravenously and is only approved above age 18, whereas mepolizumab is approved above age six. Both these therapies are effective in patients with eosinophilic asthma and mepolizumab has also been approved in eGPA and hyperesinophilic syndrome, as well as chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps. Benrolizumab targets the IL-5 receptor, and one of the nice benefits of this therapy that's administered subcutaneously is that after the first three doses are administered every four weeks, after that it can be administered every eight weeks. Furthermore, by blocking the IL-5 receptor, benrolizumab has beneficial effects, not only in terms of preventing IL-5 from binding to the receptor and preventing eosinophilia, but because the IL-5 receptor is on eosinophils, benrolizumab is recognized as a foreign body, and eosinophils may be killed through antibody-dependent cell-mediated cytotoxicity. The last biologic therapy that's been most recently approved in the United States in late 2021 is tezipelumab. And tezipelumab is a monoclonal antibody that targets TSLP, thymic stromal lymphopoietin. TSLP, as I mentioned in the last slide, is an alarmant that works upstream from all the other cytokines and, and is involved in the production and activation of IL-4, 5, and 13. In the United States, it's gotten an indication for patients with severe asthma without specific biomarker indicators. It's approved down to age 12 and is administered subcutaneously every four weeks. So we have all of these biologic therapies and it's very exciting because they can be quite effective in terms of helping our patients with severe asthma. They've all been shown to reduce asthma exacerbations. In general, they're effective in terms of reducing oral corticosteroid dosing, and they're all effective in terms of improving quality of life and in terms of improving lung function. 
So it's exciting to have all these different therapeutic options. And they're all now, in general, reflected in the current approaches to asthma, the GINA guidelines, the Global Initiative for Asthma Guidelines, which recommend a stepwise upward approach in terms of escalation of inhaled corticosteroids, adding on long-acting beta agonists. But in step five, for the most challenging patients that we have, it's recommended that we evaluate and assess biomarkers and consider the different biologic therapies. The 2021 guidelines only included patients uh, biologics IL, that target IL-4, IL-5, and IgE. However, um, we hope that in future guidelines, we'll also include uh, the other available therapies, including therapies like tezipelumab that targets TSLP. Even in children, there are recommendations for the stepwise approach to add-on therapy in patients with severe asthma. And children aged 6 to 11, there's many therapeutic options, and one should consider targeting patients with severe asthma who, again, you've evaluated these patients, you determined that they're adherent to therapy, they're refractory to current therapeutic strategies. Those patients should be evaluated for their biomarkers and considered for different biologics available in those age groups in those specific countries. So my general approach generally reflects what Dr. Jackson's and Dr. Alan Ahmad's approach is, which is, first of all, confirm an asthma diagnosis evaluate adherence to therapies, identify and manage the comorbidities, whether it's reflux disease, whether it's sinus disease, whether it's um, vocal cord dysfunction or aspiration, and then characterize the endotype by evaluating the biomarkers we have currently available, nitric oxide, IgE levels, eosinophil counts, and then utilize these biologic therapies to treat patients with a precision medicine approach based on endotype and biomarkers. Now, how do we go about choosing these biologic therapies? Well, guidelines are still evolving in terms of the availability of all these therapies, but generally we still want to evaluate the different biomarkers and treat accordingly. In patients with blood eosinophils less than 150, for example, what can we offer our patients? Well, the first thing I do is I evaluate nitric oxide levels as well. And patients who have elevations in nitric oxide levels above 20 to 25, um, I'll also evaluate their sensitivity to inhaled perennial allergens. For those patients who are allergic and have higher nitric oxide levels, but low eosinophil levels, I'd consider anti-IL-4, 13 therapy with dupilumab, or anti-IG therapy with omelizumab. And now we also have availability for these types of patients, anti-TSLP therapy with tezipelumab. For patients who are not sensitive to inhaled perennial allergens, those are the patients I'd probably consider with dupilumab or tezipelumab. Now, what if the patient has low nitric oxide level? What do we do with a patient who's got low eosinophil levels and low nitric oxide levels? Again, I check for the sensitivity to perennial aeroallergens. They might be a candidate for anti-IG therapy or... Recent data suggests that tezipelumab is effective in these patients, with reductions in exacerbations up to 39%. Those were patients all with low eosinophil levels. Most patients we see with severe asthma have eosinophil levels in the 150 to 1500 range. I take a similar approach. I evaluate their IgE level, I evaluate their nitric oxide level. And for patients who have uh, these biomarkers elevated, you can consider, again, if they have only high eosinophil levels, I'll generally choose an anti-L5 therapy, but I could consider anti-TSLP therapy as well. 
if they have higher nitric oxide levels and higher eosinophil levels, again, all, all options are available, anti-IL-413, anti-IL-5, anti-TSLP, and if they've got a propensity to allergies, even anti-IG therapy. In these kinds of patients, it's important to evaluate comorbidities, the presence of other type 2 diseases that may respond in an ancillary fashion to these biologic therapies. So if a patient has atopic dermatitis, then I would probably consider antal 413 as my treatment of choice for their asthma and for their atopic dermatitis. If they've got chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps, then there's a lot of options, antal 413 anti-IgE, and or anti-IL-5. And if they've got sensitivity to a perennial aeroallergen, all of these therapeutic strategies may be effective, whether it's anti-IgE, anti-IL-413, anti-IL-5, and or anti-TSLP therapy. The challenging patients are patients who've got levels of eosinophils greater than 1,500. For those kinds of patients, they probably have more of an eosinophil-dominant characteristics of their asthma. And so for them, I'll probably use an anti-IL-5 therapy. However, further workup and evaluation needs to be done in terms of evaluating the efficacy of other therapeutic strategies, including anti-TSLP, and even anti-IL-413, which hasn't really been studied in that setting. Another challenging group are patients with oral steroid-dependent asthma. For them, you really need to evaluate what's going on, why are they refractory, why do they continue to need um, oral corticosteroids. Therapies that have been shown to be effective for those patients include anti-IL-5 therapy with mepolizumab and benralizumab, and anti-IL-413 therapy with dupilumab. It's often helpful to go back and evaluate what the biomarkers were before those patients were treated with the oral corticosteroids. Overall, this is a good strategy to do. Evaluate, again, the biomarkers, the comorbidities, and what's going on. Now let's get back to our case and evaluate what's going on with her. Again, she's a 35-year-old woman who's had asthma since childhood with two exacerbations in the prior year, who's on daily inhaled steroid, long-acting beta agonist, and long-acting muscarinic therapy with bronchodilator as needed. She complains about the use of her rescue inhaler frequency. This, again, this is a challenging patient, and we need to discuss, would this patient be a candidate for biologic therapy? In general, I would say that someone who's had two exacerbations in the prior year and someone who's requiring oral corticosteroids with any degree of frequency, you want to consider steroid sparing options. You want to consider, in terms of improving their quality of life, you want to try other therapies. Once you've evaluated for comorbidities, which therapies could be effective? So in her, we don't have the data in front of us, but we probably want to evaluate what are her biomarkers? Does she have eosinophilic disease? Does she have allergy-mediated disease? Does she have elevated excelled nitric oxide? And then I would treat this patient accordingly. So, um, Dr. Jackson, how, how would you go about choosing the proper biologic for a severe asthma patient such as this, who potentially qualifies for all these therapies based on biomarker testing? Well, look, I think it's uh, it can be challenging, which, uh, as you mentioned earlier, is a good thing. We're very fortunate to be in a situation where we have more than one choice. As you discussed with that algorithm, it is important when, for many of the biologics, the data is similar to take into account the comorbidities. It often will make the difference both for the patient and the likelihood of uh, success. So the, in the instance where you have a patient like this who's got child onset, it would suggest there's probably an allergic phenotype underpinning there. So perhaps 
if there is, for example, eczema that persists despite you know, usual topical treatments, dupilumab would be an appropriate first choice because of its efficacy in the context of eczema. Similarly, if this patient has significant sinonasal disease, potentially all the biologics have data in the setting of chronic rhinosinusitis and nasal polyposis. Some would argue some data is better than others for certain biologics, but it can be, but all have, have efficacy in this group. Pheno is important here. In many patients who have child onset, they uh, do have a high pheno, they, they do have a more of an IL-4, IL-13 driven disease. And so you might err uh, towards either an anti-IgE or an anti-IL-4 receptor with dupilumab or omalizumab uh, therapy. But it, equally, if they're more eosinophilic, if their sinful counts are proportionately higher in uh, uh, contrasting to the pheno levels in the IgE, you may want to go for an IL-5 therapy first line. In the absence of head-to-head, -head, it's always difficult to know, but all probably in a case like this would be effective. Mona, what do you consider the potential role for blocking TSLP in these kinds of patients? Well, we, you've showed very nicely the, the, the pathophysiology, you know, the epithelial-derived cytokines. You've touched upon the alarmants, uh, and TSLP is one of them. Um, we know the evidence uh, from the uh, phase two, phase three trial, uh, and then the approval recently uh, for the TSLP. It works for T2 high and T2 low. So in this case, if we're going to uh, apply it to our case, and you say that she has a biomarkers uh, defining a T2 high, uh, definitely there is a role for the TSLP. Now, uh, the, the interesting thing about it that, you know, uh, what has been shown that it works on all of these phenotypes, the allergic, the eosinophilic, and the T2 low, and it also uh, works on decreasing exacerbations, um, uh, as well as decreasing the effector cells, uh, you know, both the eosinophils, the mast cells, the neutrophils. So um, we know that we are actually shifting between biologics uh, once we do the response assessment. And some of these patients, although they seem like purely eosinophilic driven, they might not you know, show a very good response. And we might end up of really shifting from one biologic to another. So as Dr. Jackson alluded to, really now we have you know, a number of biologics that makes it much easier for us to choose from. Uh, and I'm sure uh, you know, if, if we're gonna discuss about this patient TSLP, uh, anti-TSLP or TESI might be also an option for her. Great. Uh, one last question for you, Mona. Tell me, how do you treat patients, pediatric patients differently uh, who might be candidates for biologics, pediatric patients who may not be responding to specific therapies? What if this patient were, I don't know, 14 years old rather than 35 years old? Does that make a difference? Well, I mean, for pediatric uh, age group, um, so um, we, we go for the same general uh, assessment uh, algorithm. We confirm the asthma, we check the adherence, uh, we look for uh, control measures, we use all the different tools. A pediatric age group might be a bit challenging, especially this age group in terms of the adherence and compliance with, with medication. So we spend more time with them. Uh, you know, Gina already set the bar for the uh, treatment algorithm uh, for these patients, you know, and so we're discussing the severe uh, 
level. So uh, we're discussing about phenotyping. Uh, these patients, uh, you know, if they are already on the high-dose ICS uh, LABA and they fail, we do the phenotypic assessment. And, and based on the driving phenotype, I would say uh, for their exacerbations, we can choose the, the, uh, the right uh, biologic. Now, when we come into biologic therapy or targeted therapy for uh, this age group, uh, luckily we have a number of them that's been already approved from the age of six. And, uh, you know, the, I, will, I will go with the same uh, general uh, um, guidelines, I will say, that I use it for the adult and really apply it for the uh, pediatric. But of course, it's, it's worth mentioning here that you have to check the, for the approval uh, of certain biologics uh, um, uh, for this age group in, in certain countries. Great discussion time. Let's move on, and I'm going to pass the baton over uh, to uh, Mona Al-Ahmad, who's going to review what we can learn from each other about engaging patients in their care. Mona? Yeah, thank you very much. So now we're going to come into um, how we uh, engage patients in their care. And we know when we discuss uh, patients' engagements and really empowering patients' role into their management and uh, empower self-management, that's a key uh, role for patients. Now, this should not be uh, looked at as a separate, you know, uh, pillar here. We talk about assessment, we've talked about management, and now patients' engagement. This should be already incorporated from the first time, I should say, the first visit that you see your patients. The main goal for asthma management really is to reduce uh, future risk of exacerbations, future risk of, uh, you know, having unscheduled visits to emergency department, and of course, using the rescue medication. And the way to do that uh, is really through improving symptom control at the present time. You know, we know all that uh, having uncontrolled uh, symptom uh, for asthma have a higher risk for predicting future exacerbations. Patients who are already having a number of comorbidities are more likely to have uh, more exacerbations. And also, so poor lung function, uh, similarly, also um, have a higher future risk for exacerbations. The way to do that is really reaching an agreement or partnership with patients. So we have physician on one side and we have patients on one side. So we have to really align the goal. Uh, similarly, uh, i.e. speaking the same language, so that the patients can work with us hand in hand in order to reach uh, the main goal. Now, a key component really is, is uh, patient education. I cannot stress this enough. Uh, it, it is a key to all the success. And patient education is not only about the management or choosing uh, a therapeutics or a medication. It's about getting them involved in the whole story, in the asthma, you know, educating them about the asthma, the pathophysiology, what really worsened their asthma, what type of asthma they have. If they really well, were well-educated upfront, that's already a good investment in, in improving the severe asthma outcome, or I should say the asthma outcome in general. One tool or one component uh, um, that I consider uh, is a key component for patient education is the personalized asthma action plan, that is the PAAP. This is really a key plan and we should be incorporated in every uh, session that you spend with your patients. And with that, actually, that's going to be a, a clear communication with the patients about the uh, triggers, about what sort of symptoms they should look for, and what are the uh, management or uh, treatment options that are available, how to step up, 
how to step down. So they are really, really uh, uh, having self-control in terms of their own uh, management. Part of the education is really identify certain triggers. We'll start with the non-allergic. Now, many of us have already experienced the pandemic and we are well aware of the SARS-CoV-2 as a virus. And we've seen that uh, certain viruses, I should say, shouldn't really focus on the SARS-CoV-2, but certain viruses might really exacerbate uh, indeed asthma and result in severe exacerbation that might even require hospitalization. Air pollution, the PM2.5 or others, the cigarette smoke, um, exercise-induced asthma, uh, cold-induced uh, bronchoconstriction, all of this are among some of the triggers that are not non-allergic in nature, they might really trigger the uh, patient's exacerbation or worsen their asthma control. Now, similarly, uh, we are more familiar probably with allergic triggers, and, um, and this is usually are uh, broadcasted with the weather broadcast, and usually patients are aware that, you know, it exposure to their um, cat, for example, at home or uh, during some hobbies with horse riding, uh, patients during the allergy season, the outdoor uh, pollen sensitization, they know that this might result in asthma exacerbations. There are a number of allergic and uh, these usually are um, tested and evaluated. Uh, and then they can identify what sort of allergies that might be uh, triggering their uh, asthma. Now, a very important uh, aspect of really involving and empowering a patient's role in their own management is through what is known as the shared decision-making. So um, this is really, um, I would say, a combined effort between the healthcare physician and the patients uh, to come closer through uh, thir certain settings and visit and discuss the decision of their management. Uh, this is usually not, take, uh, not done through one visit, it's a number of visits. Uh, from one side, the healthcare worker or the physician will bring in the science, the facts, the evidence, the nature and the type of the disease, and then communicated with the patient. On the other hand, the patient will bring from their side their values, their expectation, um, their challenges, and what really uh, their goal of treatment. And the goal is really to align these two uh, perspectives, both from the physician or the treating physician, as well as from the patient. And this shared decision-making is not only about uh, discussing uh, treatment options, but it's about the whole uh, patient's journey and understanding the whole disease, the you know exacerbating the triggers and the types, and also the options of therapeutics uh, so uh, it will really empower the patients for their self-management. Uh, there are different models that have been described, and there are also certain tools that can be uh, implemented uh, to empower the patient's role. Some of them, for, for example, from this asthma allergy network, where they look at a tool to describe uh, certain views, uh, uh, values, uh, perspectives, as well as going through certain symptoms and exacerbations with triggers, uh, and the patients can download these sheets and bring them for the next session to go into uh, this shared discussion with her or his uh, physician. 
treating physician. Now, if we look at uh, applying this uh, shared decision uh, into the uh, GINA-based algorithm, um, um, looking at adolescents or adults with uh, symptoms of uncontrolled asthma or exacerbations, despite GINA step four or five treatment. Now, the first thing that we already clarified by Dr. Jackson earlier is really doing the assessment of patients' uh, uh, asthma disease, you really have to look into confirming the diagnosis earlier, assess the symptom control using certain tools, and we have now many standardized tools uh, available in clinical practice for that. And then we look into the some of the contributing factors uh, related, for example, for treatment, We've already highlighted the importance of uh, checking uh, the inhaler techniques and also looking into the suboptimal adherence and the uh, ways how to improve that. Then we look to com comorbidities. Some of these comorbidities are related to type 2 comorbid disease, like already been mentioned by Dr. Wessler, like the atopic dermatitis, allergic rhinitis, chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps. But there are other comorbidities that are not related to type 2 inflammation, like obesity, obstructive sleep apnea, and other mental disorders. Now, other risk factors also have to be emphasized and looked at, and uh, something that might be quite unique for certain patients rather than the other, like uh, some environmental habits, like smoking, uh, environmental exposures, and other. And then we come into optimizing management. Now, uh, once the diagnosis is confirmed and once all of these uh, comorbid disease and risk factors been identified, we look into optimizing treatment that is already personalized and targeted to the patients. Going through correct uh, inhaler technique, addressing the adherence, and this patient can be switched to the MARC therapy uh, or if thought might be considered even high doses of ICS. And then we treat the comorbidities according to what's really prevailing and might also consider some interventions like uh, smoking cessation, some uh, weight loss modification and uh, others. The, the last uh, pillar is really going through a revision of the response, response of everything, including the uh, treatment. And according to Gina, usually um, uh, this has been uh, suggested as three to six months uh, after the initiation or after optimizing the management. Now, if the patient is showing a good response, uh, usually we go with stepping down the treatment and we start usually with the systemic corticosteroids. However, if there are, uh, if there are persistence uh, in their uncontrolled asthma, uh, then uh, a diagnosis of severe asthma is, uh, is the case. And with that, we usually, uh, as recommended, we can refer to a, a specialist or asthma specialist for further uh, targeted management. So we can see that there is an ongoing process from assessment into adjusting several or different uh, risk factors and modifiers into reviewing uh, these uh, targeted uh, therapies uh, among others. So we're not really hitting the uh, medication, but we're hitting the whole uh, process of the uh, asthma uh, uh, education. Now with that, uh, part, uh, a major part actually of monitoring uh, uh, patients with uh, severe asthma is, as I just mentioned, looking over uh, control. So this is one of the uh, major domains that we have to look at. And as I've said, we've have validated uh, uh, tools that we can use 
you can use the asthma control test or you can use the asthma control questionnaire giving you either the uh, four week uh, recall or the uh, one week recall um, and then really has to be incorporated into the response uh, uh, process another pillar is looking at the clinical symptoms and with that you we can look for the red flags, you know, the severe exacerbations, patient hospitalization, patient ICU uh, admissions, uh, among uh, others. Now, uh, we cannot really emphasize enough the importance of checking uh, the inhaler techniques. And by this, I think it is really important to uh, check it every time that we encounter uh, patients during the visit or during a virtual visit. Uh, the inhaler technique should be really be emphasized and should be part of the uh, process of uh, assessing the uh, patient's uh, uh, clinical response. So overall, looking at the uh, patient's education or the goals of patient's education, we want to align with our patients to have a, a common goal. You know, what's, what's really important for a 16-year-old girl in terms of, you know, uh, chasing her sports might not be uh, the same goal for somebody who's uh, elderly. Uh, um, so we really have to understand that and partner with the, with a common uh, goal and objective. Uh, we have to share information in a very transparent uh, uh, way and leave the decision for the patient. Uh, he might take, he or she might take their time, but really we have to be patient with that. Um, and that's actually in a smart way will bounce back to us and in, in increase uh, um, adherence and uh, increase really um, uh, confidence or having much more stronger confidence with their treating physician. Any concerns and expectation has to be raised already. Um, and then also uh, we have to continue with education along with the uh, different visits. So uh, we'll go back now to this, uh, to our case. And as we've discussed, uh, this is a 35 year old uh, a woman uh, who's been evaluated for asthma. Uh, apparently, this patient have uh, a severe asthma patient on a triple uh, controller uh, who's already on uh, um, high or frequent use of rescue medication. She's already have some of the red flags uh, with two exacerbations in the past year we, uh, that require systemic corticosteroids. We know now that uh, patients with uh, such past uh, history of exacerbations already have a higher chance of a future exacerbation. So this is uh, a clear uh, risk factors. How will I approach this case in applying a shared decision uh, making? Uh, this patient from the first visit will be involved in uh, a structured, uh, well-planned educational plan. Uh, this patient will already be diverted to some uh, educational resources to read about her asthma. We have uh, an asthma advocacy group or a severe asthma advocacy group uh, that the, usually we, uh, we divert these cases to them. And then we can uh, allocate one session uh, uh, just to emphasize a shared uh, discussion with this patient. It's usually one-to-one -one with the presence of a clinical nurse uh, that to raise all of her concerns, getting her views, expectations. And usually this is also uh, um, uh, can be attended by a social worker to look into their certain environment and certain uh, uh, climate. Mm -hmm. 
Now, um, this, as I said, this might take a number of sessions, uh, but ultimately we are really empowering the patients to for self-management. Along with that, we uh, how I will really approach this, uh, I will implement a personalized action plan, asthma action plan uh, in the management. Uh, this patient's already, I shouldn't say fail three controller, but she's already uh, uh, trending towards a start of biologic and uh, whether she start the biologic or not, uh, because we don't have uh, more information available, but this patient definitely needs an action plan for her asthma. So I will just uh, probably ask uh, uh, Dr. Jackson as how you will really, uh, in your part, in your practice, how you will uh, uh, approach this case and probably apply some of the tools you have. Thank you. So I think it's, you know, as you've said, patient education is is absolutely critical uh, in cases like this. Uh, it's important to remember that, you know, when patients who have had two exacerbations per year, if you flip that around, actually for 50 weeks of the year, they haven't had any exacerbations. And often there's often there's sort of loss of adherence and, uh, you know, changes or exposures that have, that have happened that potentially could be avoided understanding how to promptly increase treatment sometimes it can make a huge uh, difference so i think you know engaging the patient in this way is absolutely critical in many cases emergency attendances to hospital can be avoided if the patient implements those tools that they've learned uh, in a prompt um, manner yeah, thank you dr wessler how you can approach this case uh, any difference no, I, I think that uh, one of the things that we've learned today is that the approaches we take to these patients with severe asthma from anywhere in the world really are quite similar. And what we've learned is, is if we can apply the uh, guideline-based therapy, the Global Initiative for Asthma Therapy, um, and uh, you know, we're generally going to take a very similar approach, identifying risk factors communicating with our patient, identifying what type of asthma the patient has, using a shared decision-making approach with our patient, and evaluating what are the patient's goals? What are our goals? And I think that's the approach that I generally take. And I think that sounds like it's the approach that you folks are taking as well with our patients from anywhere around the world. Um, and so I appreciate that. And I think that, again, we want to focus on what are our goals? We all want to try to improve asthma outcomes. We want to reduce exacerbations. We want to improve lung function. We want to reduce symptoms. We want to have an impact on our patient and try to improve asthma-related quality of life. And so to do that, we need to have an open mind. We need to discuss what are some of the barriers that are preventing our patients from gaining good asthma control. Thank you uh, once again. This was a great discussion. And thank you all for participating in this, in this program entitled How I Think, How I Treat, Assessing, Managing, and Engaging Patients with Uncontrolled Moderate Severe Asthma, Comparing Approaches with Experts Around the World. What we've learned is, is we need to take a very aggressive approach in terms of evaluating the type of patients that we manage, what type of asthma, evaluating comorbidities, evaluating the goals of therapy, and having an open approach with discussing the different treatment options for our patients, the barriers to care for all of our patients, and really trying to work to improve asthma-related quality of life in all of our patients. The perspectives from my colleagues were very greatly appreciated. Thank you so much, Dr. Jackson and Dr. Al-Ahmad. 
Thank you so much for participating, and thank you all for participating in this event today. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash VMJ860. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and Sanofi.